When an audience does not know the one who will speak, you need a long introduction to give a sense of background as to who they are. Today we have the world's greatest pediatric neurosurgeon here with us. Last night, when I said this, a little lady named Lisa, I don't know if she's here today, she popped out right there and stood. And Dr. Carson told me that 32 years ago, he took out half her brain in a surgical procedure and she just bounced out and smiled and gave a radiant hello to our congregation. One of hundreds. The past four years, he's been secretary of HUD. And what happened there is quite a story. In the underbelly of our cities, there is that second city where most of the people there have lost hope. Their dreams are shattered and they looked up and around and seemed to have no future. And through the ministry of HUD, Dr. Carson has been there doing amazing things to those who need it the most to have that opportunity and that leg up to make their life count. And that's been a part of his ministry for the past four years. And wherever he goes with his dynamic wife, Candy, he just echoes and lives out the words of the Apostle Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, to individuals, to marriages, to families, to the nation, and to the world. I'm thrilled to have my friend and my brother, Dr. Ben Carson. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Candy and I are so uh, delighted to be back at uh, Second. Baptist, and uh, it just feels like the presence of the Spirit is here, and we're so delighted anytime that we get to see, uh, you know, good Pastor Young, and, and now with uh, Lisa, who, who we met this time around, uh, you know, I was praying a lot and feeling bad for the pastor when uh, Joe Beth passed away, and you know what normally happens when you've been married a long time and your spouse passes away, you, you follow quickly thereafter. And I was concerned that that was going to happen. But, you know, the Lord still has a lot of work for this man to do. <laughs> but, you know, I want to talk today a little bit about God and about how he directs our paths. You know, 
My favorite verse in the Bible, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. You know, sometimes we feel like we don't have direction in our lives. How many times have you heard people saying, I'm trying to find myself? You know, you don't have to try to find yourself if you trust in the Lord and lean to his guidance. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you, no matter what is going on. A lot of times people ask me, how did you end up going from medicine into politics? Sometimes I ask myself that too. <laughs> but, you know, it was interesting because in 2013 I was asked to be the keynote speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast, and I thought that was kind of strange because I had spoken in 1997 as the keynote address at the prayer breakfast when President Clinton was in office. And I talked about integrity in office. And it was, uh, <laughs> it was just before the Lewinsky thing broke and he must be saying, does he know, you know, what's going on? <laughs> but, you know, I was very curious. I said, why are they asking me to speak again? I'm not aware that anyone has ever spoken twice, but a little investigation demonstrated that there was one person who spoke twice, and that was Billy Graham. And I said, that's pretty good company. So, but I didn't know what I was supposed to say. I said, Lord, tell me what I'm supposed to say. And of course, the organizers wanted to know also, what are you gonna say? Are you gonna embarrass President Obama? I said, it's not my intention to do so, but if the shoe fits, wear it. <laughs> but um, so after that, I didn't know what I was going to say until the morning of the speech. And uh, after that speech, everybody was saying to me, you got to run for president. you got to run for president. I was saying, how ridiculous is that? Why would I be running for president? I'm a brain surgeon. And uh, I know better. <laughs> but, you know, every place I went, there were people with placards, run, Ben, run. And um, there were over 500,000 petitions in my office. I could barely get in. There were so many boxes of petitions. And I said, Lord, you know, this is not something that I particularly want to do. And I said, I don't have any of the things that people who run for president have the Rolodex with all the names, a big war chest of money, an organization, nor did I plan to develop those things. So I said, Lord, if you want me to run, you have to provide all that stuff. The next thing I knew, I had an organization. They were raising more money each month than the RNC. Everything just sort of came together because that's how the Lord does. He doesn't ask you to do something and leave you without the resources to do it. Now, I didn't win, but I did end up in government. And President Trump always says to me, aren't you glad you didn't win? But, uh, <laughs> but you know, God has purposes and things for us to do. And, 
You know, as the secretary of HUD, you know, I saw that all these government programs were just producing dependency and that we needed to do things to make people self-sufficient and started working toward that with the Envision Centers. You know, it comes from the Bible, from uh, Proverbs 29:18. It says, without a vision, the people perish. And there were a lot of people out there without vision, and they were perishing. So, you know, we organized this, all the, the, all the various agencies of the federal government together, looking at the things, the resources, the programs, amalgamated those with the state programs, with local programs, bring them all under the same roof so that that mother of three who never got her high school diploma can come to one place, have a place where children can be given appropriate daycare, get her GED, get a job, get more training, become self-sufficient, teach that to her children so that we break the cycle of poverty. That's the only way we get out of those kind of situations. But of course, uh, it was very interesting when I got to HUD, there had not been a CFO for eight years. The financials were in such shambles that it had not been possible to do an audit, which is required for several years. There were so many material defects. And we were fortunate enough to be able to get one of the partners, senior partners from Ernst & Young to come. And uh, it took a lot of arm twisting, but he finally came. He looked at our books. He said, Ernst & Young would never have taken you guys on as a client. But it was, it was just that bad. But put together a program and used to always hear about all these scandals, financial things going on at HUD. You've noticed you don't hear that anymore. Completely transformed the place that's run like a business now. So, I don't know how long that's going to last, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was good. And we had some very good people. I didn't have any deputy secretaries for the first five months, um, any substantial help in running all the divisions. I think they were hoping that you would get discouraged and go away. But that was not going to happen unless the Lord led me to move in a different direction. But then they started coming up with all these things like, they said, Carson buys a $31,000 table, and he's trying to cut the budget but buying all these things. What a bunch of garbage. Uh, you know, basically the facilities people had said, this furniture has been in here for 40 to 50 years. It's dangerous. People were getting hurt, and it needs to be replaced. And it wasn't a table. It was 17 pieces of furniture. And, uh, but, you know... They had everything going. Carson should resign. He's unethical. And, uh, of course, an investigation took place. Cost the taxpayers over $1 million investigating this supposed table. Of course, they found nothing because there was nothing to find. 
And then they said, but his family's involved. His wife has an office at HUD. That was a $2 million investigation. It showed nothing. And you know, after all these investigations and all their accusations, crickets. They don't say anything about it. But they did stop bothering me because I think they began to realize that if you don't put any skeletons in the closet, they're not going to come back out. You know, and that's, that's something that we have when we try to live according to the principles that God has given us. You don't put skeletons in the closet, so you really don't have to worry about anything coming out. Now, a little disclaimer from me. Everybody makes disclaimers these days. My disclaimer, I am not politically correct. Okay, so, you know, I, I don't believe in political correctness. In fact, as I said during that national prayer breakfast in 2013, I think political correctness can lead to the destruction of our country because it really is freedom of speech that we're talking about. Liberty to think the way that you want to think and to live your life the way you want to live it. And now you've got people telling you what you can say and how you can say it and trying to take control of every aspect of our life. And some people say, well, it's not really restriction of freedom of speech because the federal government's not doing it. Guess what? If big tech and the media is doing it and the government is compliant, it's exactly the same effect. You lose your liberty, you lose your freedom of speech. And we must recognize that because we must fight against those things. Our Constitution, I believe, was inspired by God. And it works extremely well to preserve our freedoms, but you have to follow it. And the only way you follow it is if the people hold the politicians' feet to the fire. So it's important to know who you're voting for and what they stand for and what they have voted for. And just don't look for that name that looks familiar on the ballot, which so many people do. They say, I know that name. It could be Satan, but I know that name. You know, <laughs> they check that one off. We've got to do better than that because our, that's the way our system works. And also, it's okay to disagree with somebody. They don't have to become your enemy just because there's a disagreement. You know, the United States of America is a very powerful nation. We cannot be brought down by China or Russia or North Korea or Iran, but we can be brought down from within. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Never has stood, it never will stand. And we have to resist the forces of division and hatred that are attempting to destroy us as a nation. Well, you know, interestingly enough, you know, as a youngster growing up in this nation, I used to hear people saying all kinds of horrible things and uh, how you can't make it in this society and how it's a racist society systemically. And there's all this crap going on all the time. And, uh, but, Unfortunately, I wasn't a very good student. 
And that's putting it mildly. I was a terrible student. People used to tease me and call me dummy and all kinds of names. And I tried to act like it didn't bother me, but it did. It bothered me a lot. But I had a way of getting back at my classmates because I was very good at one thing, and that was getting other people kicked out of class. I knew how to do that because I would study my classmates, figure out what made them really angry, and then I would just irritate them and irritate them until they were about to explode. But I would never push the last button to make them explode until we were in class and the teacher was nearby. And then they would explode, and the teacher would kick them out, and I'd say, yeah, because I wouldn't be the only one who didn't learn anything that day. But, uh, but there was this one girl. You all know this girl, Miss Goody Two-Shoes. Some of you were probably her. You know, everything perfect, pristine, made everybody else look like a total jerk. I said, wouldn't it be great to get her kicked out of class? So lo and behold, we came in from recess. She sat right down in the seat in front of me. I said, the Lord is good. <laughs> and I started irritating her and irritating. She was so mad. I mean, the steam was coming out of her ears. She was ready to explode. And as the teacher approached, I pushed the last button to make her explode. But she didn't explode. She just quietly turned around and said, you and me, on the playground at recess. <laughs> so that didn't work out all that well. I did learn to stop teasing people. But, um, but, you know, my mother believed in me when no one else did. My mother was probably the wisest person I have ever known. Had less than a third grade education but she had a lot of faith in God. And, you know, she worked as a domestic, or at least that was the cover, because she was really a spy. And she would look at these beautiful homes that she cleaned and try to figure out why these people were so successful. And she concluded that they read a lot and they studied a lot. And she came home and imposed that on me and my brother. And we were not happy campers, believe me. In today's world, we would have called social services and they would have <laughs> taken her away in handcuffs. But in those days, you had to do what your parents told you to do. And, um, you know, we had to read these books. She made us read books and write reports, which she couldn't read, but we didn't know that. And uh, it was very fascinating because in the beginning, I didn't want to read the books. I didn't like reading the books. But as I started reading about incredible people with incredible success, surgeons and explorers and entrepreneurs, I began to recognize that the person who had the most to do with what happened to you in life was you. It wasn't somebody else. No one could stop you. And, you know, my study patterns began to be different. Same thing with my brother. Went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class much to the consternation of a lot of the students who used to tease me and call me dummy who were now coming to me saying, Benny, Benny, how do you work this problem? And I would say, sit at my feet, youngster, while I instruct you. I was, I was perhaps a little obnoxious, but it sure felt good to say that to those turkeys. But you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, I 
became, you know, the top student by the time I was in the eighth grade. And they used to have a special program and a big ceremony, and there was an award for the top achieving student. And I was hoping that I would be that top achieving student. I was the only black student uh, in the class. And um, I took my report card around to each teacher. They all put an A on it. I got to the last class, which was band. And I was very good in band, so I knew I'd get an A in that. And the turkey gave me a C to ruin my report card so I wouldn't get the award. To his chagrin, band didn't count, so I got it anyway. And, uh, but during the ceremony, one of the teachers got up and she berated all the white kids because they weren't trying hard enough. And some people say, see, that shows you there's systemic racism. No, it doesn't show you systemic racism. It shows you that there was a stupid lady there who was ignorant and didn't understand that people are people. And see, this is what we do in this society now. We take a policeman like Derek Chauvin, who was way, way out on the periphery in terms of how you treat people. And we try to say, this is how people act. This is how the legal system acts, and it doesn't. And we have to be smart enough to recognize that we are being manipulated in this country. And that manipulation, if we succumb to it, will absolutely destroy us. But the people of God should never allow themselves to go in that direction because he will always provide, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, the direction. He will guide your paths if we will allow that to happen. And you know, I remember as a youngster trying to determine where I should go to college. You know, I was doing very well academically, but I didn't have any money. Had enough money to apply to one college. I said, what college should I apply to? Well, my favorite TV program was GE College Bowl. Anybody remember GE College Bowl? Yeah, there are a few old people. And, uh, <laughs> You know, they would have two colleges against each other, and they would ask questions, science, math, history, geography. And I was very good in all that stuff. But they would also ask about classical music, classical art. I didn't know anything about that. I mean, Detroit, Southwestern High School in inner city Detroit. I mean, if you said something about Van Gogh, they would say, put gas in it, the van will go. I mean, they would have. <laughs> no idea what you were talking about, you know. So I made an executive decision. I would go downtown to the Detroit Institute of Arts and roam through those galleries day after day, week after week, till I knew every picture who painted them, what period it represented, listening to my portable radio, Bach, Telemann, Mozart. Kids thought I was nuts. You know, black kid in Motown listening to Mozart. I tried to convince them that the Mo in Motown was Mozart, but nobody believed it. <laughs> and, you know, I even decided which college I was going to attend based on that program. I had enough to apply to one college. I said, I'm going to apply to the college that wins the grand championship of college ball. 
that year, the grand championship was between Harvard and Yale. And Yale destroyed Harvard, so I didn't want to go to school with a bunch of dummies, so I applied to Yale. And uh, fortunately, I was accepted with a scholarship. And, um, you know, uh, things went very, very rapidly for me. But God led me, I think, to Yale because that's where I met my wife, Candy. And we've been married now for 46 years. And that's the good Lord doing that. But there were so many other directions and pathways that one could go in. And how does the Lord prepare you to become, you know, an exceptional surgeon? You know, I had gone to medical school, done well. I was finishing up my residency, deciding what to do. And we were having the grand opening of the Neuroscience Center at Johns Hopkins. And Hopkins is sort of the birthplace for modern neurosurgery, so everybody who was anybody was there. And uh, one of the big wigs from Australia was there. And he took a liking to me. He said, you should come to Australia and be our senior registrar at a major teaching hospital in Western Australia. I said, Australia? It's, I didn't say that out loud, but that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I mean, you drill a hole from Baltimore and you come out the other end, you're in Australia. I don't want to go to Australia. Plus, I had heard that they had a whites-only policy, so I just kind of poo-pooed the idea. And it seemed like every place I went, there was somebody saying, good eye, Mike. You know, I just kept running to Australians every place. We would turn the TV on, there'd be a special on about Australia. So I said, to Candy, I think the Lord wants us to go to Australia. She went and did research and uh, discovered that they used to have a whites-only policy, but they had abolished it officially in 1968. This was 1983. So we said, we're going to Australia. We sold all of our earthly goods and off we went. Our friends were saying, you'll be back in three weeks. Little did they know we didn't have any more money, so we couldn't come back. <laughs> But you know, the biggest problem we had in Australia was keeping up with all the dinner invitations. They love Americans. They want to hear your accent. I would say, wait a minute, I'm the American, you guys have the accent. But every time I would sit down and start writing in a chart, invariably somebody would come along and say, do you mind if I feel your hair? I would say, you can feel it, but it's going to cost you 10 bucks. You know? <laughs> But I would tell the Aussies, I can't remember any of your names because you all look alike. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it, was, it was an incredible experience because there were only four neurosurgical consultants in all of Western Australia. And once they discovered that I could operate, they left me in charge of the major teaching hospital. So I was doing three or four major craniotomies every day, just as I had finished my residency. If I had stayed on at Hopkins as a junior faculty member, I would have only gotten to do what nobody else wanted to do. I was doing all these prime cases, got so much experience. When I came back to Hopkins a year later, the position opened up for chief of pediatric neurosurgery. Normally, they would go out and get somebody with a lot of gray hair and a big name. And they said, well, Carson's very young, but he can do all this stuff. 
So there I was, 33 years of age, chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. And uh, that was an amazing thing. But I was thinking that I was pretty special. And, uh, you know, I'd come from Detroit, I'd gone to Yale, gone through my residency, and here I was, chief of pediatric neurosurgery at the best hospital in the world, and I said, this is, I, I am really good. That's what I was thinking. And then along came this kid at age two, already saying Bible verses, or a little prodigy, but at age four, all of a sudden he couldn't walk anymore, couldn't handle his secretions, had double vision, was discovered to have a malignant tumor of the brainstem, an inoperable situation. And they went all over the place. And everybody told them the same thing, take the boy home, keep him comfortable, and let him die. And they ended up at Hopkins, and I remember seeing him roll into the ward on a stretcher, barely moving, barely breathing, eyes looking in opposite directions, foaming at the mouth. I was thinking, what am I supposed to do? And I looked at the CAT scan. And the parents say, the Lord led us here because we would find a pediatric neurosurgeon who could help our son. And I said, but he's got a malignant brainstem tumor. This is inoperable. There's nothing I or anyone could do. And they said, but doctor, the Lord is going to save our son. He's going to use you to do it. And I said, I'll tell you what, you've come all the way up here. We'll get an MRI. MRIs were brand new at that time. I said, maybe it'll show us something that the CAT scan doesn't show us. We did it. All the radiologists looked at it. They said, it's malignant brain symptom or nothing to be done. I told the parents. They said, but doctor, the Lord is going to save our son. He's going to use you to do it. I said, look, one in a thousand times the scans are wrong, and maybe it could be like a reaction to a fungus or something like that. So I'll go in and I'll take a biopsy. They said, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, doctor. And I opened his head up, went down to the brainstem. There was this ugly grayish red mass. And I took a biopsy, sent it for a frozen section that came back high-grade glioma, a very malignant tumor. I took out as much as I dared, closed them up, went out and spoke to the parents. I said, look, I'm sorry, but it looks like it was what we thought. And, you know, only God knows how long a person is supposed to be here in the right time to take them, and we'll understand it better by and by, all the kinds of things that we normally say. And they said, thank you, doctor, but the Lord. And as they walked away, I said, I've never seen people with this kind of faith before, fully expecting that that boy would deteriorate and die. But over the next couple of days, his eyes became conjugate. They started looking in the same direction. He started handling secretions. I said, what the heck is going on here? I said, let's do another MRI. We did. There was still a big, ugly tumor, but there was a little sliver of tissue way up in the corner. And I said, is it possible that maybe this is not in the brainstem, but has just smashed and compressed and displaced the brainstem? And I said, maybe I should go back in. And the parents said, by all means. And I went back in, 
And the nature of the tumor had changed, and under the microscope, as I peeled it away layer by layer, I got to the last layer, pulled it away, and there was a glistening white brainstem, smashed and displaced but intact. Long story short, that boy walked out of the hospital and today is a minister. But that... Actually, when I was uh, campaigning uh, for president, he actually came to several uh, of my events and spoke. But that situation tells you what the Lord can do. One of the oncologists came to me after that. He said, Ben, I've always been an atheist. Now I'm a believer. But it was really for me. It was really for me because, see, I thought I was doing all this stuff. And after that, I realized that it wasn't me, it was him. And I said, from now on, Lord, I'll be the hands and you be the neurosurgeon. And it was after that, all kinds of amazing things began to happen, all kinds of cases that no one else would take on. I remember there was a young man who had von Hippel-Lindau disease. This is a disease in which you develop these tumors uh, throughout your brain, and he developed one right in the middle of his brainstem. And uh, none of the adult neurosurgeons would operate on him because, you know, that's an inoperable situation. Unfortunately for me, his wife was a nurse on the pediatric neurosurgery service. And she says, you've got to operate on my husband. I said, but he's an adult. I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon. She says, he acts like a child. So <laughs> and I couldn't escape her. And she was always putting pressure on me. I had to do this. So I said to him, you know, if, if I undertake this operation, there's at least a 50-50 chance that you will die on the table. And he said, but doctor, if you don't operate, there's a 100% chance that I'm going to die. I'll take 50-50. I said, that sounds pretty mature. The operation was very difficult. He developed all these new vessels. And under the microscope, I made a very tiny hole in the brainstem. You couldn't open it wide enough to look inside because brainstem is like a coaxial cable. Everything is important in there. So I just made a little hole and put a probe in and felt for something that felt different. And I felt it and put a little grasper in, started pulling it out and very slowly delivering it through this very small hole. And then the evoked potentials went flat. And the anesthesiologist said, the evoked potentials are gone. You killed him. He's dead. Because he was very much against the operation. And he says, I told you you were going to kill him. Well, got it all the way out, closed him up. He went to the ICU. Everybody was quite sad. But you know, the next morning when I came in, he was sitting up in the bed. He had been extubated and he was telling jokes. And he went, <laughs> I did very well, you know. And I knew that I didn't do that. I knew who did do it. And 
that kind of characterized my whole neurosurgical career. And there were so many other things that happened. The Banda operation. These were craniophagus twins joined at the top of the head, facing in opposite directions. Those kinds of twins had never been separated before. This is in South Africa. We went in, we did that operation. It took 28 hours. And we had reached a point in that operation where it looked impossible. It looked like spaghetti, red spaghetti and blue spaghetti. They were all mixed, trying to figure out how do you separate them. It's like trying to diffuse a time bomb. And I just sat down and started trying to remember all the things that I had seen on the computer, because I couldn't bring the computer from America with me in terms of where the different vessels went. And I don't even remember what happened over the next several hours. But the other neurosurgeons in the room told me afterwards they couldn't believe what I was doing. And I knew it wasn't me. But when we finished that operation after 28 hours, one of the twins popped his eyes open reached up for the tube. By the time we got to the ICU, the other one did the same thing. Within two days, they were extubated. Within three days, they were eating. Within two weeks, they were crawling. Today, they are adults who are perfectly fine. That is the power of God. And you know, before that operation, I had tried separating another set of twins from South Africa and it had not worked, and I was very disappointed. But during that operation, we had put together a team and the equipment that made it possible to be successful in the other operation subsequently. And sometimes God takes us through some trials to give us what we need in order to be able to accomplish something else. And that's what we have to remember. So that's why it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. We don't understand these things because we cannot see the end from the beginning. But he can see the end from the beginning. And if we will only trust him. And we don't have to be concerned about what's going on in our country right now. I mean, it looks like the end. But do you really think God's going to neglect us at this point. If he was willing to save Sodom and Gomorrah for 10 people, we're good, okay? Don't worry about it. Just trust in the Lord with all your heart. And I just want to close with a prayer. Our kind Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you never forsake us that you never neglect us, that you were always there for us, no matter what is happening, that you will give us the direction, that you will give us the strength. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. To you, all lives are important, and you died for every life. And let us be your eyes and your ears and your hands on this earth to bring about your will 
we ask in the very worthy name of Jesus.